Jen, thank you for sharing some of your story with us um, this morning. Um, maybe your story touches this topic of the sanctity of life. That's, that's true for me as a person, not just a pastor. It's true for us as a family. Um, this started for me when I was 16 years old uh, on the way back from Hume Lake in a, in a big bus. Um, a gal in my youth group sat next to me, and that was an odd thing. I wondered why, and I, I found out that um, while she was pregnant and needed someone, she could trust to drive her to a crisis pregnancy center, which I did. And she later aborted the baby and spent some time in the hospital with complications. Um, uh, from a medical uh, procedure, apparently, and uh, that really marked me and, and shaped kind of some of those early years of my life. Fast forward about seven years, and, um, and uh, my, my, my sister carried a baby to term. Um, she found herself pregnant at a young age as well, and found herself in a car with her boyfriend driving her to a crisis pregnancy center, which was really just an abortion center, um, kind of encouraging her down that road. And uh, while the car turned around and my sister had the courage to carry that baby to term and uh, walk through that process of helping to place that child into an adoptive family. And fast forward um, a number of years later, maybe 13 or so years later, and there was another young gal who found herself uh, pregnant and made a courageous decision to carry her baby to term. Uh, that, <clears throat> that, ba that baby's my boy, Luke. <clears throat> And since that time, our family's been really um, passionate about this issue. Um, it started in the meeting with Luke's birth mom. Um, it started with Mandy. We call her the closer. Uh, we got to the end of the interview with Luke's birth mom, and there were questions, and there was one question everyone just wanted to know, and Mandy at age eight asked it, and the question was, are you going to give us your baby? <laughs> Mandy, uh, Mandy asked the question, and Luke's birth mom said, absolutely, this is, you are the family that, that should raise Luke, and, um, and we're so grateful. That really marked all of our family. It marked Ashley in a particular way, and she's been devoting kind of a lot of her time and effort to the pro-life movement, and uh, I could do dad brag stuff on all my kids, and like, I'll spare you, okay? But what I will tell you is Ashley probably has more experience at her young age than most people in this room or most people in general on this issue. And so I asked her to come this morning just to kind of paint the picture for us in terms of where we are in our cultural context. Uh, maybe many of you know, but um, I wanted to give her opportunities to paint that picture and then we'll dive into Psalm 139, okay? Ash, thanks for joining me this morning. Yeah, thanks, Dad. You can tell by our choked up voices, we do have Italian genes. Um, so excuse me if that is evident. Um, so this summer, I had the opportunity to work with the organization, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called Susan B. Anthony List. Um, they're one of the leading grassroots organizations that works in the pro-life movement. Um, in the previous administration, they had some ties to the White House. Our president was on the pro-life coalition through that whole campaign and administration. So I got really unique in insight into the legal standpoint, but obviously from that, a lot of personal experience as well. Um, a lot of times people ask me, why are you passionate about abortion, right? Sanctity of life, there's a lot of different issues you could care about why abortion. Um, and so from my dad sharing, you guys obviously know our tie to Luke um, and just the beauty of adoption. And so seeing that the opposite of that is the ending of life and not the carrying on. Um, and also just the beautiful picture of uh, biblical adoption that that paints. Um, but the more and more I got passionate <clears throat> about the pro-life movement and in seeking justice towards um, abortion in general, um, is I realized that it all stems from abortion. 
Um, abortion is the most objective uh, denial of life um, from the start. Um, and so a lot of injustice we see um, is bred from not the opportunity to have life, but also um, abortion in itself uh, kind of exudes more destruction and death. Um, so abortion isn't just an abortion issue, it's a life issue. Um, at the beginning, it's a eugenics issue, right? So um, internationally, for example, um, Japan, abortion was always illegal in Japan. Uh, World War II hit and they were in an economic crisis. Um, the leaders of Japan saw abortion as an industry to reboot their economy. Uh, so they passed the Eugenics Protection Act, uh, stealing language and verbiage from Nazi Germany to create this act and used abortion clinics to reboost their economy. Um, it's also seen in America. Um, black Americans make up roughly 13% of the United States population and 40% of our nation's abortions. Uh, this is a racial issue uh, and this is a eugenics issue. This is also a socioeconomic issue. Um, a lot of times abortion clinics, as we know, are in low uh, places of poverty, um, but also 80% uh, of women who see an ultrasound or sonogram choose life. And abortion clinics like Planned Parenthood know this. Um, and so a lot of times they don't provide these services. A lot of states don't even require that they do. Um, or if they do, they charge $200 minimum, knowing that woman can't pay this. Um, and also, the farther along you are in your pregnancy, the more your abortion costs. And so if they get women to not have an ultrasound, they can convince them that they're farther along than they actually are and charge them more. So this is an industry, <laughs> and it's a socioeconomic issue. Um, in the United States in particular, you don't even have to go into a clinic anymore to receive an abortion. Uh, you can order a pill to your doorstep. And in some states, in one of which is our own, um, in 2023, you can go to your university's health center and uh, have it in your dorm room. Uh, so you can begin to imagine um, a lot of these places, these websites that you can order this pill, you don't even have to show proof of some of them that you're pregnant uh, or even a woman. So you can only imagine the kind of people uh, that will obtain this and exploit women uh, even further. So this is a eugenics issue, a race issue, a socioeconomic issue, uh, but this is also a domestic violence issue, a prostitution issue, and a human trafficking issue. Um, while I did learn all of these things, um, sorry. Okay. Um, probably the most powerful thing was um, when a lady came and sat across from us in our break room at the organization. Um, she had survived an abortion. Um, her mom um, took a pill and um, while her body suffered desperately, a lot of that effects, um, she miraculously was born and adopted into a family. Um, and she shared her story, but not her survival story. She shared her forgiveness story. Mm -hmm. She was adopted into a family that raised her to know the truth of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And she returned to her birth mom and forgave her. Mm -hmm. And she now has a ministry called the Human Coalition where she takes on abortion survivors mm -hmm. and um, helps them with their mental, physical, um, and emotional trauma mm -hmm. and presents the truth of the gospel to them. And so while abortion is all of these different issues, at the core it's a theological issue. Um, and we as the church have a really unique standpoint where we see all these issues. And while there is opportunity to proclaim the truth of the gospel, there's also opportunities like Jan was just sharing and like the story of this young woman who came to our uh, organization. 
that there's opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, and that we as a church can look to the hope of the gospel, and in particular the Holy Spirit, to empower us to point these women in desperate need of not only um, guidance and help and service, but their ultimate need of the gospel. And we can point others towards um, the salvation and the sanctification that the Lord offers until he one day returns and reconciles himself to us fully. So thank you guys. All right. Well, I'm gonna invite the worship team up now and uh, Many Christians emphasize rightly that we should be talking about the sanctity of human life because God is our creator. And that's what the scripture tells us, that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us this. Many Christians say we should be talking about the sanctity of human life because God is the author of life. Uh, The Bible also reminds us of this in the first sermon in the life of the church. The first sermon in the life of the church, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. Many Christians say we should talk about this issue because God is the giver of life. The Bible does tell us that. Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, that, that he is the one that gives life to all things. Many Christians think we should be talking about this rightly because it, God is our sustainer. He is the sustainer of life. And Colossians 1 tells us that, that God holds all things together, even our very lives. He holds the universe together and he holds each individual life together. He is the sustainer. And many Christians believe we should be talking about the sanctity of human life because God is our protector. And they're right, because he is. He is the protector of the widow and the orphan and the low, and the outcast, and the poorized, and on and on scriptures we could share all morning. He is the protector. These things are all true, but I believe we should be talking about the sanctity of human life, not just because God is our creator, or he's the author of life, or he is the sustainer, or he is the protector, but we're talking about this this morning because human life is valuable, not just because God created us, but because God wants to know us. God wants to know us. It's not just that he created us and that he created this great environment for us to live in. He wants to know his creation. When I was young, um, I had an ant farm. Maybe, maybe you did too. And, um, and I think you learn at an early age, like, okay, so you get these ants and they're really small and you get the package and like you feel like empowered, like you get to create this little, this little world for them. And if you remember back in my day, there were like these skinny little small ones and then these like really large ones and mine was somewhere in between, you know, and you got to kind of help create the world where they live and you, you sustain them, you help to give them the things for life. It's just this like cute little project and... I think we often think about life like that and we think about God like that. Like, I just want to make clear, we're not deists. Christians are not deists. We don't just believe that, like, God created things and, like, put us in this great world and was like, there you go, you know, enjoy it. And he's sort of watching from afar, but he's not involved. We don't believe that as Christians. It's not just that God created us and that's valuable. It's that he wants to know us, which makes our life intrinsically more valuable than we can imagine. Life is valuable not just because we are created in the image of God, that's part of it, but because we are created to have relationship with God. And Psalm 139 is a, is a beautiful passage that reminds us of at least four things about this reality. And the first is this, that human life is valuable because God knows us and he knows us perfectly. 
I'm sure you heard it as the psalm was read. It starts in the beginning with verse 1 where it says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, you know it altogether. You've hemmed me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He knows us. And he's taken the initiative to know us. Did you catch that? You have searched me. Not I have searched you. You have searched me. He's taking the initiative to know us. He knows what we do. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows what we think. You understand or discern my thoughts from afar off. He knows what we're going to say. Even before there's a word on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it all together. Have you ever known someone that can complete your sentences? <laughs> he could create your sentences. That's how well he knows you. He knows our inclinations. You have searched my path and my lying down. This word path literally means a well-worn path. Think of a rut in a road. He knows where you're going to go. He knows what's happened to you in your past and in your present. And he knows what will happen to you in the and before. You lay your hand upon me. You're with me in all of those things. He knows everything about us. You're acquainted with all of my ways. And this is true for everyone. It's true for every human life. No matter how young you are or no matter how old you are, you are valuable because God knows you. Whether you are a male or a female, you are valuable in the sight of God because he knows whether your skin is white or black or brown or whatever words they use to describe the shade that God has so graciously granted you, you are valuable because God knows you. If you are rich and people scoff against you, or if you are poor and you wish things could be different, you are valuable in the sight of God because he knows you. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic is. Whether you ha are born with all of your God-given abilities or you were born with some kind of what we call a disability. Some special education teachers call it a superpower. You are valuable to God because he knows you. There are some people who know some things about us, don't they? There are some people that know a lot of things about us. Spouse, best friend, child. But only not, God knows all things about us. You know what? Even more than we know ourselves. God knows you better than you know yourself. <laughs> all of life is valuable, not just because God created every human life, but because God knows every human life. And I, I, I want that to stick this morning. God knows you. We might ask the question, well, how would we respond to this? How, how, how should we respond to this reality that God knows us like intimately, perfectly, completely? How would we respond to this? Well, the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We, we should respond in awe and wonder and worship. 
And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and you find yourself in the midst of our church this morning, and a morning we're like, yeah, I thought that's what we're Christians about. They always talk about abortion. We do at least once a year, because we think this is really important to the idea that God knows us. And I hope if you, even if you're not yet a Christian, that there's a sense of awe this morning that, that it, if God exists, and we believe obviously he does, that, that he would know us that well. And I, I hope that might even translate to a sense of wonder that you would just be in awe and wonder like this remarkable and it would move you to a place of wonder where you'd want to discover something more about who this God is. And if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that this <laughs> just sends you to a place of worship. That God knows me. He pursues me. He wants to know me. He took initiative to know me. He knows me perfectly, completely, intimately. I hope that draws you to a place of worship this morning. Surprisingly, that is not the normal human reaction. But the psalmist tells us what is, starting in verse 7, where he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? The word flee is not a good word. It's a word that the readers of this psalm would have associated with the prophet Jonah, because it's the same idea. Where would I run away from you? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and show, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Human life is not just valuable because God knows us perfectly. Human life is valuable even though God knows our, listen to me, our tendency our tendency, the natural human tendency is not to be in awe of the reality that God knows us intimately, perfectly, completely. The natural human tendency is to see that not as an awe-filling reality, but an awful reality that many people, most people just want to get away from. Because if it's true, and the Bible says that it is, that God knows us this perfectly, then we are accountable to a God who knows everything about us. So what's our natural tendency? What's the natural tendency of human beings? It is to run away from this reality, to just get away from it somewhere. And there are all kinds of places that we try to run away and get away from this reality that there is a God, that he did create life, that he does sustain it, that he wants to know us in the midst of it. And we're accountable to him for the way that we live it. We run into all sorts of different areas of life. And this is why I believe the psalmist includes this section because he's writing during a time where in ancient times people believed that the gods had various realms and that they were regulated to their realms. Their, their presence and their power was regulated to certain realms. So this deity is in this realm and you go to this deity over here for this realm and this deity over here for this realm. And I'm, I don't wanna make too many connections here, but I remember growing up as a kid in an Italian Roman Catholic side of my family, always had patron saints for all kinds of things. And it's like, if you are in this realm, you pray to this one. If you're in this realm, you pray to this one, because that's what they're all over in a sense. And again, I don't want to make too great a connection here, but it feels similar to me. And what the psalmist is saying here is, our God is not like that. 
There's nowhere that you can run. You can't run from him out of one realm into another because he has a presence and he has power in every single realm. There's no realm where we can escape his presence, where we can escape his power, where we can escape his knowledge of our lives. There's nowhere that we can go, although we try. A lot of people try to put categories, you know, what, what are the realms of life? And I think there's at least five. The first one is a spiritual realm where, where we have like a spiritual relationship with God that it's, it's a unique thing to us as Christians, I believe, but there are people that will call themselves spiritual. There's a vague spiritualities. The most popular one I think in our country is what many have called moralistic therapeutic deism, where it's like you just, you just decide what your morals are. Uh, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're good with God and people and because God's there, but he's really not involved with you, but you're going to be good in the end if you just live a good life according to your own morality. That is a realm of life. It's the spiritual realm. There's a personal realm where we have, we take care of our bodies and we, 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 we take care of our mind and we tend to our relationships and there's family where we have marriage and we have children and there's this work where we have our vocation and there's all kinds of industries in which we can find ourselves working and that's where we earn money and we, we got the realm of finance and then there's the world where there's culture and then there's the world of the church. And there's all kinds of places that we can run. And this is what we do. We, we run into things and all kinds of good things. Did you notice on this list of realms is some really good stuff. And people, human beings have found their way to, to run into these different realms of life, to bury themselves in these different realms of life so that they don't have to sort of raise their head to see the reality of what life is really about. That we're created by God in his image and likeness and that he wants to know us. Running away from God into these different realms of life. You could run away from this in your family, in your children, in your work, in your physical fitness, in the, the, in the books you read, in the development of your mind. And you can run into these things. You can run into the work of the church and not raise your head long enough to look at these things. Running away from these things gives us the illusion that we don't have to acknowledge or think about or deal with the things that are most important, most valuable to God, and that is us. And that we were created in his image and likeness for relationship with him. Now I know because I see a few blank stares, you're thinking, yeah, okay, that's true for people in general, but that's not true for us, right? Like I'm here, the small people, like that's true for people in general, but... But here we see this is also true for God's people. I mean, this is what the psalmist is saying. Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I, again, the Jonah word, where shall I flee from your presence? I mean, even we as God's people can have a tendency to, to run into these other things and to get our head down in them so much that we don't lift up our eyes to see the reality of the way, the myriad of ways that we are as humanity coming against the image of God in people in particular. But even so, God still pursues us. Even so, God still pursues us. And he shows us that he wants to know us. Even there, your hand shall what? Lead me. And your right hand shall what? Hold me. Even when we try to run away from these realities, <laughs> he is present and he's there and he's good. 
And despite our tendency, God still wants to know us. Which brings us to our third reality this morning, and I believe it's something like this, that human life is valuable because God created us and knows us, not just perfectly or completely, but here's the part where we say he knows us intimately. And this is maybe one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible on this idea For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful all your works and my soul knows it very well. I mean, this begins with the reality that God knows us intimately. He knows our being, all of it. He knows our our inner being at, at the level of the soul. He has an intimate knowledge of our soul. Did you catch that? I mean, this is not just something that goes on like a Christian pro-life calendar or something like this. Like, for you formed my inward parts, the seat of my life. The Hebrews would call it, we would know that as you formed my soul, my inner being. That's why he says my soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well. He's created, he knows you intimately. He knows your soul intimately. The thing that animates your body, that makes you who you are when you relate to him and other people, God knows you intimately in that realm. And then he moves on to say, my frame, my frame, the tent that holds our our soul, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. He, he not only knows our inner being intimately, he knows our outer being intimately. He knows everything about our tent, our shell, the frame as the, the psalmist calls it here, the body that houses our soul. He knows everything about that also. He knows our body, he knows our soul, he knows our history. Did you catch that? The days before they were formed when as yet there were none of them. Now, we know ourselves these ways. We, we know our own bodies. I know the scars that I have. I know my frame. You do too, right? And we know something about our inner self. We, we know what, what is at the seat. We understand who we are a bit at the, the level of the soul and the kind of personalities we have and the things that, that kind of come out of us. They're in our heart. We use language like this. There are passions. We use language like this. And we know those things about some people very well, and they know it about us. God knows it perfectly, intimately. He knows everything about you, everything about your frame, and everything about your soul that fills it. Well, if this is all true, and the Bible says it is, then God deserves much more than our natural tendency to run away from him. This brings us to our fourth point this morning, and it's this, that human life is valuable. So God deserves our loyalty. He knows us completely. He knows us intimately. He deserves our loyalty. I mean, how do you respond when someone has perfect knowledge of you, that knows everything about you, knows your imperfections of your frame and of what fills it, and loves you anyway? I mean, Dean and I have been married for 26 years, and this is part of marriage, right? You know everything about a person, and you love them anyway. She loves me anyway. The response to that is is loyalty. (laughs) I mean, that breeds an extreme loyalty to her. 
in my heart and mind, right? If you're married, you understand how this works. I think God's given us marriage as a great picture of that. Like we, God deserves our loyalty. He knows us perfectly and intimately and completely, and he loves us anyway, and he pursues us anyway, and he deserves our loyalty. And I think, I think this is, this is in part what the psalmist gets out here. I mean, when you heard Jan read it, she, she emphasized this part of it in the reading. Did you catch that? And, and did it kind of like strike you like, ugh, like that? Right, like, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I mean, l- listen to this. And it's in, bo- it's in bold on purpose on the screen, right? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. This week I was going to school with Luke, taking him to school, and we were talking about some things in the Bible, and it was Peter's denial of Jesus. And I, we were talking about the reality. The Bible is so awesome because it, it, it includes the hard things. So like if the Bible wasn't inspired by God, it, it, it wouldn't include things that were so pejorative about like a guy like Peter. Like it's, it, Peter does not get a good look, right? And if they were trying to doctor it up, he probably would have edited that stuff out of the notes, I think. I think the same, a similar thing applies here. I mean, the Bible, the psalmist is just going, this is it. This is what I think. And I'm expressing this. And, and part of this, and sometimes in the Bible, is kind of a hyperbole. And this may not even be that here. He may just be saying these things. Like, this is what I think about this. Because I'm so loyal to you, the author, the giver, the sustainer, the protector of life, that those people that would come against life or destroy life or degrade life or diminish life in any way, shape, or form. Like, they are my enemies because they're yours. We've talked about this before at the Village Church. There, there is a righteous and an unrighteous kind of anger. And I think the psalmist here is righteously angry in some ways, and he's expressing these things. The Bible doesn't hide this stuff. Righteous anger is being right at the right thing for the right reason and in the right way. And I think when people come against the image of God in people, in any way, abortion is one way, racism is another way, ageism is another way, sexism is another way, right? I mean, like we could go on, right? But when people come against the image of God in people, that's the right thing to be angry about. That's righteously to be angry about that. But then there's the the right reason. Is that just because we don't like it? It makes us uncomfortable. We have certain preferences. Or is it because it's something that's attached to God? And then in the right way, how would we actually do this? I mean, would we hold up signs that that some people hold up? Probably not. You know, would we say certain things? Probably not. Would we do it that way? Would we say other things? Probably would. How would we do that? How will we go about expressing a righteous anger against these things? Does God sense our loyalty to him and things that matter to him through our sense of righteous anger? And what might it look like? What would righteous anger look like? I think this brings us to our fifth and last thing, that human life is valuable, so we should give ourselves to orthopraxy, not just orthodoxy. And um, I know those are big words, but I think most of us get what they mean. It's about what we do, not just about what we say we believe 
and I think conservative evangelical Christians, which I think would describe what most of us would describe ourselves out. And I know there's nuance here and there for different things, but I think we're conservative evangelical Christians and we can get sort of at some places a bad rap for just giving ourselves to orthodoxy, just believing certain things, but not orthopraxy, like doing something about it. You can't just say we believe something about these things. We have to do something about them. And here's what the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The first thing is, is, to, is if there's righteous anger about these things, is go, does any of this exist in me? Does any of it exist in me? And then, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Like, how, how can I deal with that on my own level, in my own soul? And then, then I can be let out in the way everlasting, which I think is saying, this is God's way. This is God's economy. This is kingdom stuff. How can I then affect things outside of me? I think there's three ways that we can do this, maybe more. I just said, first of all, we can acknowledge these things. Like we can acknowledge that, that maybe we just had our head down to things and not up to see that God actually values life. And we got to remember that. We got to acknowledge that. And he values all of life. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female. You know, I went through all the categories, right? He values all of it. Maybe we need to acknowledge that more often and more clearly to ourselves and to others. Maybe we need to advocate. We need to do something about it. We need to become an advocate and do something about these things. As we see people coming against the image of God and people, specifically this morning, we're talking a lot about right to life, the sanctity of life, doing something about that. Maybe one of the things we do about it is we, we adopt children who are created in the image and likeness of God. I want to tell you, the Village Church, we actually have an adoption fund for that. We actually help families in our church to adopt children. Because sometimes finances is a, one of the things that keeps people from doing it. We want to help with that. We have ministries related to this. And we have people who know it and understand it. As we wrap up our time this morning, I know this could feel like a little bit of a heavy morning. And it, it will here a little bit. But I think once a year is worth our time. I want to invite Peter and Michelle Herring to share a little bit about their story. Um, they are people that have acknowledged these things. They are people that have been advocates for these children, especially. And they are people who have pursued uh, foster care and adoption. They've not only said that they believe something, but they've done things about what they say they believe. They've done very heroic things about what they say they believe. And so I invited them to share a little bit about their story this morning. And as they do, um, please give them your undivided attention and, and then we'll share a few more things and wrap up our time together. Good morning. That's on. You guys can hear me? Okay. Um, all right. Hello, George family. Um, first of all, Michelle and I want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Um, yeah. uh, for all your prayers and encouragements over the last few months. Um, we have felt them and needed them and need them still. The last few months have been so hard. And these last two months have felt especially dark. But they would have been even harder. It felt darker if you didn't know and sensed that so many of you 
were carrying the heavy burden, we were asked to bear it with us. Last week, I sensed the Lord impressing on my heart that I should share with you some of the lessons that he's been teaching us in this season. When I reached out to Pastor Matt, he told me that he had been thinking about reaching out to us about whether we would be willing to share a few words on Sanctity of Life Sunday. So I started to gather my discombobulated thoughts, and here they are. Um, please bear me with me, as these things are very raw, and might, I might not get through them fluidly. Church has been the place over the last few months where we have not been able to keep it together. The gospel is beautiful, and it hurts. As most of you know, Michelle and I began caring for a little preemie in the NICU in September, a very sick preemie. We were told by the placement social worker that the expectation was that we would likely get an opportunity to adopt this little boy due to mother's disappearance after the birth and no other relatives having come forward. This was a new situation for us, and our role as foster parents, adoption has never been a primary goal or motivator, although we have always been open to it. Over the next three months, we visited this little boy in the NICU nearly every single day. Our family called him Baby Benny, short for ben Benjamin Ransom, which is the name we chose for him to give him an identity, and because we didn't really like simply calling him Baby Boy. This little baby boy, unwanted by his parents, was loved and wanted. He was the son of our right hand, and this little sick boy, who should have died before he was ever born, had been ransomed from death. The three months of visiting baby Benny were some of the hardest and most exhausting moments of our marriage. We vividly remember sitting down with the primary doctor a few weeks into visiting him, having the doctor unload one and a half hours of medical information to us, explaining to us how sick this little boy really was and how poor his long-term prognosis was. We left this meeting in a daze, remembered twice coming into the hospital after he had gone through surgery without anyone telling us in advance. And yet, in the midst of this difficult season, there were also moments of joy, as this little boy began, to rec began recognizing our voice and looking for us when he heard us in the room, moments of sweet snuggles with this tiny, tiny baby. A few weeks before Thanksgiving, there was an unexpected turn for the better. After praying fervently for baby Benny's healing, as so many of you guys did with us, um, it appeared that, you know, that day that God had answered the prayers. Baby Benny was responding far better than the doctors had expected to her steroid treatment to help his lung development. He starting, started needing less oxygen day by day and was able to begin bottle feeding. And it seemed like it was going well. He was weaned off the high flow oxygen and was only needing a quarter of liter flow of oxygen, um, which was almost enough for him to come home. The doctors thought this was a miracle because of how badly damaged his lungs were. During one visit, one of the doctors told Michelle the words that we had been hoping for and praying so much. They were thinking about discharge planning, home for Christmas, which was our hope and prayer, seemed to be coming true. We related. He was interacting with us during our visits. He was smiling at us, and our hearts were filled with joy. On the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I had a Teamsgiving lunch with my work colleagues, and I shared with everyone how grateful I was that it looked like baby Benny would be coming home to us very, very soon. That night, I went to the hospital expecting to see progress continue, but that's not what I found. When I got there, everything was different. He was getting hooked up to several machines, and he was using more oxygen than he had since the very early days when we had first met him. His lungs had crashed that day, and no one had bothered to call us. From that day on, almost every visit brought further bad news as he steadied the client over the next several weeks. First, I had to put him back on a CPAP machine because he was working too hard to breathe. It was just a nasal cannula. 
Next, I had to keep increasing the flow of the CPAC. During one visit, I was holding him, and he was peaceful and breathing calmly. The next moment, he experienced some bloating, which upset him and caused him to rapidly decline. He turned gray, his oxygen saturation dropped, and even with really high concentration of oxygen, it took a long time before he gained color again. It was so scary. Another night, I sat with him for four, nearly four hours while we received a blood transfusion. Finally, the doctor told us that they were requesting court permission for a tracheotomy and to insert his G-tube through his stomach wall. But before they could even do that, he declined even further, so they had to intubate him. And still he continued to decline. When I arrived at the hospital on the night of December 16th, I found baby Benny completely sedated and paralyzed, so he would not fight against the intubation. People would only speak in hushed voices, and he was touched as infrequently as possible to avoid disturbing his sedation. It was a heart-wrenching picture. That night, I spoke to his doctor for 45 minutes, who explained to me that, there was, that he was simply not responding to any of the treatment and that they were out of options. She had just completed the paperwork for the court to request permission for DNR and end-of-life care. She told me that she was not sure that he would make it through the weekend and we should prepare for that possibility. She told me to keep our cell phones on that weekend so that they could call us if it was coming to an end. I left the hospital night devastated. What was God's plan in all of this? I drove home in a fog, weeping, and I'd, yet I had no idea that a darker hours yet awaited us. The next day, Friday, around 5.30 p.m., Michelle received a call from a social worker who had not been directly involved in the case, a social worker from the special medical placement department. She told us that we would no longer be allowed to visit baby Benny because his placement status had changed. He wouldn't come home to our home or any foster family, even if he survived. It would be placed in a long-term facility if he survived. In short, we were told in a very cold and heartless way, we were no longer needed. Thanks a lot, thanks for nothing. We pleaded with the social worker and our supervisor, telling that baby Benny needed us in this dark hour, but no avail. So it was Friday evening, the court was closed, there was nothing for his attorney to do, even though she tried. The social workers told us we could have one final visit, and then our access would be cut off. That night, we rushed to the hospital, but contrary to what we had been told, our names were already taken off the visitation list. But by God's providence, the receptionist that night, who knew us well and had built a bond with Michelle, ignored the instruction and let us in anyways. And when we got to the NICU, it was our favorite nurse who was on duty with him that night, and she allowed us to visit, again, contrary to instructions. For several hours, we prayed over him. We wept over him, and Michelle changed his diaper one last And then we said goodbye, not knowing whether we'd ever see him again. In fact, that was the last time we saw him. Despite trying to pull every lever in every favor we had, our appeals went on deaf ears. Other than twice being told that he's still alive, still in the NICU, still not having made any progress, we have no further information about how he's doing. The wounds of these past three months are very deep, and we've not had yet time to really process them for various reasons. We've have wept so much, a lot of that in church. We've been clinging to the truth that God is good in the midst of all of this, and he has a good plan, but little about the events of the last few months have felt good. It may take years for us to understand all the lessons he wants to, us to learn from this experience, but there's one that's been weighing on my mind and that I want to share with you, our church family, on this Dignity of Life Sunday. The gospel is beautiful, but it also hurts. The gospel is beautiful because Christ is beautiful and his work is beautiful, but the gospel also hurt 
hurts because Christ was willing to be hurt and was hurt for us, the lost, wandering, broken, hurting, orphan children, so that we might be adopted into his family. The gospel comes with an awful price tag. He gave his life so that we, the orphan children, might have life. And he calls us, his body, to be likewise willing to be hurt and get hurt for the lost, wandering, broken, hurting, orphan children who are not yet part of his family. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I've always been stunned by these words, and I still don't really understand what Paul means by filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. But then Pastor David um, said something a few weeks ago as he was preaching about Acts 14. It started to give me maybe a glimpse into what Paul might be saying. Dave was talking about Paul being nearly stoned in Iconium and then stoned nearly to death in Lystra, and yet being willing to return to both cities after those events to continue preaching the gospel. In talking about Paul, David mentioned the idea of scars suffered for the sake of the gospel. This is an idea I had always associated with the persecution, the kind of persecution Paul suffered in Iconium and Lystra, but David spoke about the gospel scars more broadly. As David spoke, something clicked in my mind. The wounds Mishael and I were suffered over these last few months will be gospel scars. And when they heal, different than Paul's scars, but gospel scars nonetheless. The only reason we suffer these wounds is because of the gospel. The only reason we were at Benny's crib site night after night was because of the gospel. The only reason Michelle sat with him when he came wounded and bruised out of surgery was because of the gospel. The only reason I suffered through this little boy getting a blood transfusion was because of the gospel. The only reason why I was there that night he crashed and our hopes were dashed was because of the gospel. The only reason I was there outside the room talking with this doctor about him dying was because of the gospel. The only reason my child received that call on December 17th was because of the gospel. The re- only reason we prayed over him and wept over him on his final night with, our final night with him was because of the gospel. The only reason why we have hope despite all the darkness is because of the gospel. We were there because Christ called us to be there, to be his hands and his feet. These wounds are not our wounds only, they're his wounds. We were there because the gospel compelled us and we could not say no. We were there because he placed a call on my life many, many years ago to be a father to fatherless children. And he called Michelle to be a mother to little orphan boys like Benny and Michael and Nate or other foster children. Christ's work is wholly sufficient. There's nothing lacking what Christ did for us on the cross. And yet maybe part of what Paul is getting at in Colossians 1.24 is the fact that there's still so many lost, hurting, broken, orphan children in the world. And when we, his body, are willing to be heard for their sake, we are continuing the very work he did for us. We are making Christ's wounds come alive for those orphan children. On this Sunday of Life Sunday, it is important to remind ourselves that the body of Christ has always considered caring for orphans as one of the primary ways to reflect the life of Christ. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the gospel. May our story, the wounds we bear in our body, be an encouragement to you to be his hand and feed to a world full of lost, broken, hurting people, orphaned children in need of the Father. Yes, the gospel hurts. How could it not when we were called to follow the one who bids us come and die, the one who was wounded and bruised for us? But the gospel is so beautiful. He pursued us, the orphaned children, while we were his enemies with an unrelenting love. He emptied himself for us so that we might have fullness in him. The gospel is beautiful, even and especially amidst of the darkest moments of our life. Because he is the gospel and he is beautiful. Fostering has cost us so much. It's cost us time, it's cost us money, it's cost us.
comfort, leisure, sanity, (laughs) and our hearts. And as Peter shared, the gospel is beautiful and it hurts, but it also changes everything. On one of the harder days, I received a text from my friend Jen and it wasn't an admonition or a suggestion or even an encouragement per se. But in the text, she simply reminded me of the gospel, who Christ is and what he's done for me. The God of the whole universe became flesh and sought me out. Me and you, a wandering wretched orphan. He went to crazy lengths to come into my life. He pursued me and he chose to sacrifice his life so that I would be his and I would know what it is to be loved. He gave up his money, his time, his comfort, his leisure, his heart to call me daughter and to restore my dignity. And that text reminder was everything for me. How can I not be moved to go and do the same in his name? The gospel we proclaim changes everything. This Jesus changes everything and he is life. I'm gonna try to be a little bit briefer than Peter. And there are just two main things that I wanna share with you this morning, I'm sorry. as we think about the sanctity of life and uh, what we can do to bear witness and proclaim just the preciousness of life, especially when it comes to the least of these. Um, The first thing is that we don't write the story. I did not write the story. As you heard our story with Benny, I'm sure you were struck by how little control we had. I was. Nothing in that chapter went the way that I had hoped or expected. I had dreams of standing up here on a dedication Sunday and presenting our miraculously restored new son to you all. But I'm not the author. My job is to be faithful to my calling, to be prayerfully obedient and to trust him. I need to trust him with my story, that he loves me and has things in my life for my good and for his glory. I trust that he's writing Nate's story, Michael's story and Benny's story. And that these stories and lives are of so much value, no matter how short our intersecting time with them was. I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I struggle most with this one. I need to trust that God is writing my children's stories, even as their own hearts are broken because we have chosen to foster. This precious little girl right here has said goodbye to three different little brothers. And after each one, I ask myself, why am I doing this to her? How could I be doing this to her? But you know what? He's writing her story too. And he's using these life-changing experiences to sanctify her heart and to help her see and live out the gospel too. Her sweet little heart is being broken for their sake. And that's a really good thing. I need to trust the author and perfecter of my faith to take care of the consequences for my obedience to him. My all-knowing and all-good father is the author of life, the author of our stories, and he's the hero too. I'm not in a place where I see the positives from this experience quite yet, and I'm not sure I'm gonna get to on the side of eternity. But I do know with my whole heart, mind, and soul, there will come a day when he will redeem all of this. There will be a time when laughter echoes through his halls of peace. What a story, what a hero. Secondly, lastly, it's overwhelming to think of how we can make a difference in our hurting world that clearly doesn't value life. You're just one person, I'm just one person. Let me encourage you by asking you to look around this room. 
Peter and I are working in a very broken system, fighting against things that are way bigger than us because we believe in the dignity and worth of these little kids. And we don't do it alone. This room of believers is a body and we carry burdens with one another. When Peter and I started this round of fostering, we were given a care community. At the meet and greet lunch at our house, I think 30 people showed up for us and we didn't know all of them. (laughs) This room right now is full of people who love Jesus and see people as divine image bearers who will walk with you towards broken and hurting people. When we had need, the toes showed up with boys clothes, baby boy clothes. Susie drove to my house with swaddling blankets that I needed for him while he was in the NICU. Maisie, Lori, and Kinsey sent me many encouraging texts. Anna, Serena, Kinsey, Pam, and my mom showed up to paint his room when we thought he was coming home. When I needed it, Amy sent a life-changing song. Bree has poured into our kids during this time. She sent me encouragement and she's brought me coffee. The community group leaders at a meeting stopped their meeting to pray for us and to pray for Benny. Lisa gave me the perfect hug during communion, even though I was sobbing and disgusting. Gita has sent me verses and songs and shown up with flowers at my door. Matt, Josh, and Bree went to the hospital and stood outside on the lawn to pray for him in close proximity. Pastor Matt sent out an email to all of you asking you to pray for us. Amanda Sales called me the midnight we found out he was going to die and all we did was sob on the phone together. My mom has stopped everything to watch my kids so that I could be at his OT appointment and other appointments. Both my parents have prayed for us and loved these boys as if they were their own. Pam and Jaren have given us our care community. They pray for us, they constantly check in. Pam holds me when I ugly cry. She's become my tissue bringer. There are people, our people. And this little girl right here, she's the reason why we said yes to Benny. (laughs) We were praying about it, and she had heard the whole conversation with the social worker, and she said, Mom, I think we should do it. I could go on and on. This church has changed so much the last years in terms of who comes to this building, but the church has not changed. This room is filled with the church, capital C the body of Christ, and they will train alongside you, strive alongside you, pray alongside you, and carry you when you're wounded and you're tired. You're not alone. Gospel is beautiful because he is beautiful. It hurts sometimes too, but it will change everything. It allows us to see all those around us, all us broken, wretched orphans, literal and figurative, as we can work, and it allows us to move towards them in Jesus' name. Thanks. Church, do you stand with me? Um, at the Village Church, we pray for people, and um, when we do, we ask our congregation to extend a hand on out. And before we, we sing, we're going to do that. And I want to say before we sing, you know, I, this is a unique morning in the life of our church, and um, and thank you for allowing it to play out um, the way I think the Lord would have it. Um, we, we are going to sing because, well, that's where we came. We came to worship. I think you even hear in Peter and Michelle's story, their desire to worship even in the midst of hard things. And this morning, we want to be advocates together for life because we're created in the image of God and he's given us his life physically, spiritually, but that's not always easy. And that was one of the things that 
we wanted you to sense this morning, and it's not always easy, but we're together in this, and I hope you hear this from them. And, and would you just extend a hand on out, just kind of show your solidarity with them as we pray for them, and as we respond in worship, as we respond in worship. So the way that Christians respond to things is that we respond in worship, even these things. So Lord, we, we do respond in worship, and so we come to you, that's what worship is. And we come to you in prayer. We come to you declaring our dependence on you for these circumstances and ones like them. We come asking you to help Peter and Michelle and their family. We come asking you to help our families and our church family to, to have the courage and the belief and the strength and all that we need to walk into acknowledging these things, becoming advocates, adopting children, all the ways that we can do something about the things that we say we believe about the life you've given us. And pray that Peter and Michelle and their family would sense and know your presence um, in very tangible ways in this season. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that they've articulated that we believe. And so even in the midst of these things, we respond in worship. We do it in your name, Jesus. Amen.